It was in the sixth grade when I had my first experience with someone openly maligning me. I had two best friends coming up to middle school from elementary school. But we got to this one reading class and had this one teacher. And over the course of a few weeks, uh, I had this one teacher who began to just intentionally separate me from my best friends. Now, there are various factors, but I remember hearing one conversation regurgitated by my good friends. They said, yeah, the teacher had told my mom, who happened to be a teacher herself at the school, that she's going to encourage me not to be friends with you because, one, you are a Christian, and two, your mom is in politics. For most of that year, I was friendless trying to rediscover what had really happened. I could blame the lack of friendship in sixth grade on this teacher and being frustrated. I just, it just didn't help my case any because frankly, I was a punk. I was arrogant. I thought I knew everything and I didn't take any initiative to form new friends. I was frustrated and confused. At the same time, as we look back at a situation like that, where a teacher intentionally separates and a group of kids to foster a relationship between two and, and distance one, surely because of Christian and political connections, as I learned from my friends, we kind of have to ask a question, even though it's kind of all of a mess. Was this persecution? Persecution is not so easily defined between interpersonal relationships. Some of you might jump to instantly say that the teacher was wrong. She should have not separated me from my friends on the basis of uh, just us being Christians, but that's not necessarily persecution. Others of you may say, well, clearly she made a choice based on your religious beliefs, therefore persecution. Regardless, I was forced to deal with a type of loss. As followers of Jesus, we have all experienced slights, broken relationships, fracture things in our society and in the world. If we have been open about our faith in any way, when we experience these adversities, often there's a question in the back of our heads. Was this distance between me and others a product of sin, or is this actually active persecution? Difficulty, persecution, and suffering are often associated with another topic, the end of the world, the consummation of time. Why? One word, loss. The thought of the end of the world forces us to come to grips with loss. We all deal with and process loss in different ways. Loss of friendships, loss of life, loss of hope, loss of identity. In today's passage, Jesus prepares his followers for loss. It says in Mark chapter 13, verse 1, as Jesus was leaving the temple, this is more than a physical description of where Jesus is heading. Rather, it symbolizes Jesus' final and definitive break from the temple. In Jesus' day, the temple had already, already been under construction for 50 years and was still unfinished. At no place was Herod the Great's obsession with building more apparent than in the Jerusalem temple. Herod enlarged Solomon's temple to a size that could encompass 12 football fields. It was enormous. 
In the southeast corner of the retaining wall hung some 15 stories above the ground that sloped down to the Kidron Valley. The disciples' statement should not be surprising. The temple was a sight to behold and was still in process of being built. However, Jesus' statement catches the disciples off guard when Jesus describes that despite the grandeur, despite the splendor, this temple would not last. The reason comes to us as we understand the temple. There is a fabulous video on YouTube by the Bible Project on the temple. The temple was to be where God dwelt. It was a location where the people could encounter the one true and living God, where there was going to be a mediator or mediation between God and man, where people could encounter the divine, where man could be made right with God. And that's where that mediation needed to take place. And Jesus is saying, no more. God's presence was there in that temple, no more. Especially as we move into verse 3, when Jesus is questioned about his proclamation. Verse 3 now locates the group over on the Mount of Olives, opposite of the temple. For Jesus has authority over the temple. There on the Mount of Olives, 2,700 feet above sea level and 200 feet above the temple complex, Jesus could look down to it. The inner circle of Peter, James, and John and Andrew approach him privately. They want to know, when will these things happen? They want to know, Jesus, if you're saying that this temple is not going to stand, if it's going to be torn down, if no stone is going to left, uh, be left standing, when? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to take place? Because to lose the temple, to lose the sight that it was becoming, was going to be a major loss in the minds of the disciples. The disciples are thinking about the final consummation of history. They, they've got one eye on the future. And in some ways, they didn't expect a long interval between the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. But Jesus does not address the issue of timing, though he does use the soon coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem as a type of foreshadowing or end-of-time events. He's trying to give them a picture of saying, let's take the temple as an example of how God is at work in the world and what is to come, and I will also give you a picture with that, what it means at the end of time. Jesus uses two phrases that are similar to summarize the posture of his followers as he describes what will happen in the future specifically in verse 5 and then in verse 9. These words are, watch out and be on your guard. In both admonitions, Jesus warns that the signs do not portray the end. As Jesus describes what will unfold within their lifetime and what will happen after their lifetime, the warnings are present to inform the disciples. Future speculation about his return must never be at the expense of present obedience. Jesus is beginning to describe that, that he will return 
and, and at the end of time. So, so he is already there on earth, and he is coming back again after his death and resurrection. And this is all about to unfold. And so he's, he's starting to look forward beyond the cross and resurrection. And he's beginning to lay a foundation that says, even in the midst of trying circumstances, even, even though you may feel overwhelmed, even as you look towards the future, that should never be at the expense of present obedience. Though there is a litany of woes present, Jesus' words were to anchor the disciples to watchfulness and faithfulness in the present. Remarkably, Jesus describes how the calamities do not interrupt the coming of God's will and his way within the world. Though he describes famines, rumors of wars, and all these things that are happening, and you could probably sense the disciples getting a little anxious, a little open up. He's saying, even in the midst of all of that, God's will and his way will be made manifest within the world. Meaning, no matter the global scenario, God's family will be expanded for generations to come. No matter the global scenario, no, no matter the local scenario, God's family will be expanded for generations to come. You can bank on that promise. Even with the adversaries and downsizing of the church described in verse 9 through 11. In fact, they, they provide an unprecedented opportunity for witness to the nations. No matter where a Christian finds themselves, they will be able to communicate something about God's faithfulness to people of other nations. Church, we must be both the communicators of Christ's character and must be listeners from our brothers and sisters who have undergone persecution for many years. We must check our own character and we must listen and look at the posture of other Christians around the world who have undergone severe persecution. I'd encourage you to look up a publication called Voice of the Martyrs. That's a great way to, to, to expose you to what type of persecution for being a Christian uh, is happening, how that's happening around the world. And so as we look at these verses, we see not only will there be trouble on a global level, there will also be trials and persecutions on a personal level. Another way to put verse 9 may be, you must be clear in your own minds. Emphasis on the you. The point is to rid believers of utopian fantasies and remind them that adversity and persecution are not aberrations of the Christian life, but rather the norm. Let me say that again. That adversity and difficult circumstances as we seek to live our faith in the public eye, that, that as, as we face those difficult challenges, as, as we bump up the things that, that are inconsistent with the way of Jesus, those should not be aberrations to the Christian life, but rather the norm. Let's step out with a wider lens for a moment. Mark's writing to Christians who are undergoing very intense persecution death in the gladiator realms, having their houses set on fire because of their refusal to worship Caesar and the good works in the city that they have done has subverted the economy. Mark's words here are comforting to them. 
they are experiencing exactly what Jesus has predicted. Rather than anxiety about the circumstances, they are meant to be an encouragement and for these believers to be empowered. The inevitability of persecution ought not produce anxiety and fear, but rather the assurance of God's presence in the Holy Spirit. Difficult circumstances, different challenges ought not to cause fear and anxiety in the life of the believer. Rather, we should be assured of God's presence through the Holy Spirit with us as we walk through life. Followers of Jesus are again reminded that faithfulness does not consist in forecasting the future and determining preemptive responses but rather in trusting that God will give to give give grace to them to complete their service in his name and indeed speak through them in order to make God's own name known it's at this juncture that i believe it would be appropriate to address the actuality of persecution within the united states when Jesus is describing what will unfold within the world to his disciples on that mount, he made it clear that not all suffering it, his followers experience is persecution. Some of it is just the natural sin and brokenness of our world because societies, nations, and regions will change. Because people are present, sin is present. Therefore, just with the brokenness of our world, as, as Romans says, all creation groans for the consummation, for the redemption that comes with the returning of Jesus to be made new, that sometimes the pervasiveness of sin just causes things in our world. And so there is a difference between a loss of privilege and persecution. At times, even within my lifetime, being a follower of Jesus has been a benefit in business deals, brought increased credibility within the public realm, and even leveraged was even be able to leverage for extra benefits. This line of credit is eroding. Dare I say it has eroded. Christians no longer have a line of credit when their character is called into question. However, the loss of this line of credit within our society does not equate itself to persecution. That's not to say there aren't very real incidents of discrimination and even hatred towards Christians in the United States. However, I believe Christians are still relatively well-protected and more often accommodated than actively harmed. Though, as I said, that, that may be changing. Regardless, the follower of Jesus must be willing to admit the differences between someone not liking you as a person because you're simply a jerk and someone not liking you because of Jesus. It's here that I would make that distinction. At the end of the day, persecution is simply someone treating you differently, slighting you, harming you because of Jesus. Now, we at Generation Church, that, that's right there in our vision, because of Jesus. We want to be a because of Jesus people. The way in which we live in the world, the way in which we interact in our community, we want to be able to connect the dots back to that justification. And we should expect that as we seek to make our faith public, that as we exist in, in, in certain spaces and we name that we are doing certain things because of Jesus, that we will encounter people who distrust us and dislike us and may even malign us because of that justification. 
regardless, we should not let that dissuade us from following Jesus. There is, though, a pervasive doctrine of victimhood that wants to ensnare every aspect of our lives. If Christians aren't careful, they will succumb to this mentality that always defines oneself to the degree one is oppressed. The result will be acting out of character with Jesus in an attempt to dissuade suffering. In other words, we'll attempt to act in preventative and preemptive ways to simply avoid the hardship that would come from us living out our faith in the public sector. Alan Noble, pastor and author, writes this in The Atlantic. As evangelical morality increasingly comes into conflict with dominant cultural mores, evangelicals need to be more careful about the debates we choose to engage in, the rights we choose to assert, and the hills we choose to die on. Too much is at stake for the followers of Jesus to waste our resources and credibility on frivolous and occasionally self-provoked injustices. Imagine defenses drummed up by the sensationalists and fear mongers should be exposed and denied. At times, even legitimate offenses should be overlooked when they are petty. By focusing attention on real and substantial incidents of persecution, evangelicals, followers of Jesus, will be much more effective at educating their neighbors and fighting for truly important matters of religious liberty. And this has implication for those outside of the faith as well. It's a challenge of tolerance. Just because some claims of persecution are contrived doesn't mean actual persecution doesn't exist here and elsewhere. And even though the traditionally powerful influence of followers of Jesus in America is waning, that doesn't mean it is just to infringe upon our rights. Tensions between Christians and non-Christians are likely to grow in the coming years as cultural mores shift. And out of this tension will come negotiations, dialogue, lawsuits, ignorance, and conflict. For followers of Jesus, preparation for this must begin in our own houses. As we learn to better discern good theologies, thinking about God, of suffering, uh, edifying stories of persecution, and distorted reports of discrimination. Let me repeat that last line again. For followers of Jesus, preparation for this must begin in our own houses, in our own places of faith. As we learn to better discern good theologies of suffering, edifying stories of persecution, and distorted reports of discrimination. Let's be honest. We do not like hardship. Christians should not attempt to do preventative maintenance on our world to prevent the loss of credit within our world. Though Persecution is never something sought by a Christian. It's not something to seek, but it is a byproduct of seeking first to be aligned with Jesus and his family code in the world. We at Generations have tried to do our best by articulating some of this family code through our values. The expression of values tied back to God's word will inevitably cause friction 
even within one's own family. Let me just name some of our values that, that may begin to cause friction within our world. Give over get, spirit over self, story over sin, send over stay, and even progress over perfection. Just went ahead and named all five there for you. But if you go and even to our website and read those, you'll begin to see how, how those applied within our world will, will start to challenge some of the, the own things in our own heart that, that we hold dear. So it inevitably will cause friction for the get yours mentality in our culture. Jesus states this in verse 12, that, that there will be hardship between families, that, that brother will turn against brother and family member might even turn against family member. In the Jewish world, uh, this is a big deal because it was the household more than the individual that determined identity and bore witness to God. The breakup of families thus attacks and jeopardizes life and faith at the most intimate and formative level. As we think about how we live in the world, when we begin to practice these values, it's going to break up some strongholds of sin and darkness in our lives. And as it seeks to, to break up some of the sin and darkness in our world, Satan will not be happy. Others who, who have believed faulty things about our world will feel attacked. And we must, again, return to the character of Jesus, be filled with compassion, joy, and kindness. And ultimately, I would say, to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit as we interact within those moments. Because as we surrender to the Holy Spirit within those moments, the Holy Spirit will give us what to say. And though it might not always work out how we hope, we can be confident that as we are in tune with the Holy Spirit, we will have been obedient to God. Some of you, as I talk about family being at odds with one another, have experienced this within your own lives. Your family has been ripped apart because of differing beliefs. Let me gently remind you, though, that there is a difference between family division over actions and their consequences and the explicit because of Jesus' reason. Christians should think rightly about the end times. In our passage today, Jesus does indeed address the imminent description, the destruction of the temple and the city. And in doing so, he provides a preview of distant attractions, his second coming and the end of the age. In doing so, he helps us deal with loss. Here's what Jesus says in light of that reality. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered. The promise is supreme comfort in the midst of trials. Followers of Jesus are not expected to do what they cannot do, prevail over all adversities. We may never see victory in our lifetime, but we must do the one thing that we can do. We must be do one thing and, and maintain the one thing that every believer can do in any crisis to endure and be steadfast. To keep our eyes on Jesus and return to his word. To get together with other believers and have spiritual conversations. 
to, to, to remind each other of Jesus' second coming, to remind us to each other of Jesus' perfect life and his sacrificial death and his resurrection and the hope that that brings in the everyday things of life. We all cope with loss in differing ways. Some of us try by goodness. Some of us do it by badness and rebellion. Or some even try the way that I think is the most profound, by the way of Jesus. Some people prefer to live for the moment, to get as much pleasure as they can and not thinking about tomorrow, not think about what comes after they die, not think about God except perhaps to shake their fist at him or his church. Some people deny God explicitly with their words or functionally by living however they please. Some have even sold out to it and don't think it is so bad at all. Some people prefer to live very religiously, very morally, minding their P's and Q's and keeping a tidy behavioral ledger running. They are doing their best to be good and think good and say good. They serve and give and sacrifice, but they don't love Jesus. They might even go to church. They might even think themselves too good for the church. They are trying to earn their keep in the world. Either way, trusting that karma will save them, maybe, or those heavenly skills will tip in their favor when it's all said and done. Living by these two ways, there's never an actual way to deal with loss. So what do we do? We look to Jesus. He alone offers rest from trying to be good enough. He alone conquers our fears of being too bad. In the end, Christianity stands alone, not because it's a better religion, but because it speaks a better word. Christianity is unparalleled because Jesus Christ is unparalleled. He is the only one who showed that on the other side of loss, there can be gain. And we should be on guard so that we are not deceived or anxious about the end times. Because when time runs out, those who are connected to Jesus will not lose. They gain. Imagine a church that reminds each other of this. This is my hope for Generations Church, that we be people who are not anxious about our culture. Rather, we are steadfast. That we are not caught up when the American temple will inevitably fall. Rather, we are on guard of where our true hope lies. Meaning, we will adhere to our family code. We will practice spirit over self, give over get. Progress over perfection, story over sin, send over stay because of Jesus. We will not be surprised when we bump up against different things in our world and ultimately we experience loss. Because we know as we journey with Jesus, while we experience difficulty, suffering, different adversities, on the other side of loss is gain. And that's why each and every week, we remind each other of this through communion. It's a time each week that we can come together 
we can take a piece of bread and, and drink some juice to remember that Jesus did not stay dead. He came back to life, and he is coming back for us to make all things new. On the other side of loss is gain. May we not be anxious or overwhelmed when there are rumors of wars, when there's famine, when there's difficulty, and when there is adversity. For us at Generations, may the reasoning, the way which we live in our world be again and again because of Jesus.